writing helps. <laughs> so I went in the little room and I wrote my testimony. So if I'm kind of glued to my notes, you'll understand why. My conversion was one of childlike faith. I was just a 10-year-old girl, and I felt God's irresistible call, and I accepted eagerly. It wasn't until later in my life that I learned how to lean on him, and when all I had left in this world was my family and my faith. In 2008, like so many families in our country, we suffered job loss, both my husband and myself. My husband had to leave a position just three years short of his full retirement, and I was laid off of a teaching job. Economically speaking, we were in dire straits. Our home was at risk, a home that we had hoped would be our forever home for us and our four children. In spite of trying to find other positions, God had other plans for us. We had to reinvent ourselves. We had to reinvent our home and our vocations. The struggle was painful, but I clung to God's truth that he would get us through. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, when nothing else was in the pantry, taught me to be present in the moment. If I could pay our mortgage just one more month, I gave thanks. I did not look ahead, but gave thanks for the provisions he gave us daily, sometimes hourly. Phil, my husband, took a job in retail, and I did baking and cooking for friends. I still wanted to teach, but again, God had other plans for me. He was teaching me to let go. Letting go was the theme of that season of our lives. Eventually, through God's help and keeping the faith and the support of loving friends and family, we recreated our home. After five years of disciplined saving, we bought another home. And just so you know, it was better than the first. <laughs> Older, but built better. Phil landed a better job. And yet the lesson remained with me and still remains today. I have learned that I can be happy in all circumstances through Christ. Proverbs 31:25. She is clothed in strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. Jeremiah 29:11. For I knew the plans I have for you to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Amen. Thank you so much, Betty. I've so enjoyed being in small group with Betty and um, love your testimony. Okay, Romans 11. I found out this morning that um, John Piper says Romans 11 is the hardest book of the Bible to um wrap your head around, which I'm glad I didn't know prior to <laughs> this morning. Um, so anyway, Romans 11. If we are not grounded in God's sovereignty, we are not grounded at all. We will be adrift in an ocean of what-ifs and why-gods that will give us no peace and no rest. In Romans 11, Paul continues his teaching on God's sovereignty over salvation, which is essentially what election is all about. In Romans 9, uh, Paul began teaching us the doctrine of election. In chapters 9 through 11, he explains to the Gentiles and Jewish Christians in Rome how they fit together in God's plan, 
how election applies to each of us individually and also to the Gentiles as a group and the Israelites as a nation. In chapter 9, he expressed his deep desire that his brothers, fellow Israelites, would be saved. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He takes us back um, to the election of Israel from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. He reminds us that God said through Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is our sovereign Lord. He will have mercy on whom he chooses. At the end of chapter 9, he says that Israel pursued righteousness by works, and so Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone that is Christ. In the beginning of Romans 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Zion, is that they may be saved. But he quotes Hosea saying, Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. At the end of chapter 10, though, we read in verse 21, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So now here in Romans 11, Paul sums it up. I'm so glad I was assigned to teach this passage because I really needed to have a better understanding of this. I'm sure we are all like this. There are things in the Bible we think about from time to time and have questions about, um, but kind of gloss over. I've wondered about the nation of Israel and the prophecy that all Israel will be saved, but I've never really looked into it until now. In Paul's time, uh, there was a, a small number of Gentile Christians and a small number of Jewish Christians and a, a large number of ethnic uh, or Israelites. Now there is, at, at the present time, there's a large number of Gentile Christians. Uh, most of us here are Gentile Christians. Um, and a smaller number of Jewish Christians, and a fairly large number of non-Christian Jews. So it's interesting to me to think about how the early Gentile Christians and how dip, uh, would think about this and how different it was for them to read these words than it is for us now. Um, did they all have Jewish friends? Did the Gentile and Jewish Christians get along? Um, I imagine that we all have Jewish friends, and like Paul, we all desire those friends to come to Christ. Uh, we feel a spiritual kinship with our Jewish friends because of our shared history. Uh, we rest on their root, and that's, that's good to be reminded. Um, yet we know they need Christ. So Paul asks the questions that we are thinking too. Romans 11.1, 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He then tells the story about Elijah that is so encouraging. Elijah is standing in the midst of destruction, fearing for his life, and thinking he is the only one left following God. But God reveals to Elijah that he is not at all alone, but he has preserved a remnant of 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee, the knee to Baal. 
And when I first started uh, looking into this, I read several different commentaries, and I can't remember which one this came from. But um, one of them pointed out the contrast between Elijah thinking he was the only one, the last faithful one, and yet there were 7,000 of his own people, and he had no idea that they, were, they had not turned away from God, and that this should be a great encouragement to us. Um, that, um, hang on, this should be a, a great encouragement to us when, that when we feel alone in our faith, or when we look at the Jewish nation now, there is a remnant that is larger than we know that God has saved for himself. Don't be discouraged. We do not know the whole story. God is at work even when we cannot see it. God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he is at work. He does have mercy on many. He is doing things all the time that we do not see. God is sovereign over all things, and we can trust him. So, what about those who are not a part of the remnant? Verses 5 through 7. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So those who aren't a part of the remnant were hardened. Here we clearly see the part of election we don't like to think about, and we talked about this last week. Here it doesn't just say that some were chosen and some weren't. No, the rest were hardened. Uh, They were hardened to God's truth. Why? Why were the rest, the bulk of the Israelites, hardened? In verse 11, Paul asks and answers this question. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is classic Paul. He doesn't give us an argument with main points and sub points laid out clearly. Here he lays out his argument all at once. Then as we go through the chapter, he keeps circling back around, adding more detail, layer by layer. So why were the Israelites hardened to bring salvation to the Jews? Why? To make Israel jealous. Why? To lead to an eventual full inclusion, to bring salvation to Israel. So now in the next verses, Paul takes this truth about how God is at work in the world, and he makes it personal to his own ministry. Paul says, in essence, I am preaching to you Gentiles to bring you to salvation, so to make my fellow Jews jealous, to bring some to salvation. Because if their rejection means salvation for you, the Gentiles, how much more will their salvation mean? He gives two two illustrations, dough and a tree. He says if the dough of the first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. The first fruits and the root of the tree refer back to Abraham and the patriarchs. Those who received the promise and through them the blessing was passed down to all Israel. Calvin says these illustrations are referring to the nation of Israel as a whole. He is referring to the Israelites as a whole and the Gentiles as a whole, not necessarily each individual. He's not saying each individual um, Israelite or each individual 
Gentile um, are part of this, but as a whole. He does this to prevent pride on both sides. The Gentile Christians are not to be proud because their salvation came only because God first worked through his chosen people, the Israelites, and they are supported by that root. The Jewish Christians are not to be proud because the bulk of the Israelites have been cut off before because of their unbelief. Studying chapters 9 through 11, I can't help but think about the Holocaust. There were Christians who were anti-Semitic, who went along with the Nazi policy that slowly took away the rights for the Jews and led eventually to the massacre of 6 million Jews, men, women, and children. I've read many books about this horrible time in history, as I imagine all of you have. I would like to read a little bit from an article written for the Biola Center for Christian Thought by, by a man named Andrew Tix. Um, the seeds for the Holocaust lay in the history of anti-Semitism, a strand of which has long been perpetuated in the Christian church. Beginning soon after Christ died, some inaccurately blamed Jews for the crucifixion. For centuries, many also have struggled with the fact that Jews do not convert to faith in Christ. Partly because of these reasons, even Martin Luther wrote a book on the Jews and their lies. And I have to say, I was very shocked to even learn that he had written this book. Um, it is critical to understand that many of the same forces that allowed the Holocaust continue to exert themselves today. It's crucial to remember that the Holocaust sprang from a predominantly Christian part of the world. In fact, Holocaust historian Doris Bergen notes that approximately 95% of Germans at that time were baptized into the Christian faith. Many who declared Jesus as Lord and Savior were personally involved in the atrocities. The conclusion that religious studies professor and Presbyterian minister Stephen Haynes draws is that Although Christian anti-Judaism did not by itself make the Holocaust possible, it could not have occurred without Christianity. Put simply, the history of the Holocaust testifies to a glaring failure of Christian love. And I would add to that a, a lack of understanding of Romans 9 through 11. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that Christians could have read chapters 9 through 11 of Romans and come to any other conclusion than that we are to love our Jew Jewish brethren. Of course, we all know many Christians helped and hid Jews and even died alongside them in the camps for trying to help. Um, we should hide these words from Romans in our heart so that if ever we are faced with a choice to love or not to love, we choose to love. Okay, moving on. Um, the ESV titles the next section, verses 25 through 36, the mystery of Israel's salvation. The mystery here is circular. At first, the Gentiles were disobedient and hardened, and the Israelites were God's chosen people. Then the Israelites were hardened so the Gentiles could receive mercy. And in the future, the Israelites will receive mercy through the Gentiles. All Israel will be saved. So what exactly does Romans 11.26 mean? What does all Israel will be saved mean? Will Israel be saved without converting? No. Romans 9-11 through 11 clearly makes the case that Israelites must convert. They have been hardened. The branch is broken up, off. They must accept Christ to be grafted back in. 
John Piper wrote an article titled, Five Reasons I Believe Romans 11.26 Means a Future Conversion for Israel. All five lay out the case that all Israel is talking about the nation and not all individual Israelites. He says that this verse refers to a future time, most likely the end times, when there, there will be a mass conversion of Jews to Christianity. They will recognize Jesus as the true Messiah and come to him. Um, he quotes J.C. Ryle from a book published in 1867 called Are You Ready for the End of Time? And he says, The Jews are kept separate that they may finally be saved, converted, and restored to their own land. They are reserved and preserved in order that God may show in them, as on a platform to angels and men, how greatly he hates sin and yet how greatly he can forgive and how greatly he can convert. Never will that be realized as it will in that day when all Israel shall be saved. Um, and that, that is one view that Piper's talking about. Um, how, how will this happen? Piper gives a few prophetic verses he believes speak to this very event. Uh, Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they ha whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And Matthew, in Matthew 23, 39, Jesus says to the hardened nation, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, Michael Kruger, who largely our Bible study is based on um, his teaching, presents another widely held interpretation of this verse that he favors. He says that all Israel refers to the Israelites from Abraham to the end, end times that have believed and been saved. So after Christ, those who believe that Christ is the Messiah, those who become Christians are the remnant. And Kruger explains that all Israel in this interpretation means all of Israel from generation to generation that are his elect will be saved. Uh, the hardening will be in place until the full measure of Gentiles has come in, and at that time, Christ will return. Um, so the main difference between the two interpretations is that one says there will be a mass conversion of Jews in the end times, and the other doesn't believe that. But they both teach the scripture, which is that there is a remnant currently at our time. Um, and I like to think that when you think of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, the contrast between the time that that was written, and now that the numbers of Gentile Christians um, is exciting to think about. Um, if you would like to read more about that, you can find Michael Kruger's uh, Romans Study Part 33 is what you have to put in on Google. Romans, Michael Kruger's Romans Study Part 33 is where he describes... Um, that and John Piper's article, Five Reasons I Believe Romans 11 and 26 Means a Future Conversion for Israel. Those are both good reads if you're interested. Um, but so, what does that mean for us today? First of all, we should not be re reluctant to talk to our Jewish friends about Jesus. There is not some special way that Jewish people will be granted heaven apart from Christ, they will only be saved by accepting Christ. But we do have a common bond. Um, we share the same root. 
And though many have been broken off, as Paul says in verse 24, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in? There is a remnant being saved, even now. And second, we read in Romans 11:25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, Piper says. Rightly understanding the historical process of how God saves Gentiles and Jews undercuts Jewish and Gentile pride. The point of explaining all this is so that we won't be proud. Most of us in this room are Gentile Christians, but not all. We have at least one uh, Jewish Christian here. We should not be proud that we are Gentiles who are God's elect. Um, Did Gentile pride lead to the Holocaust? It probably played a role. And Jewish Christians should not be proud that they are of the remnant of Israel that is elect. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. We must only be grateful for his mercy to us. I love what Paul does next here in Romans 11. He reminds us that we can trust. We can rest in the sovereignty of God. We can trust that his way is right and good. In all things, we can trust him. We don't have to figure it all out. It's okay to not understand it all. We can just, with Paul, stand in awe of him. So Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.